Salutations. My name is Tyler Ellenick, and this is Raven Drool, the podcast that chronicles all things 90s can rock. This episode is the conclusion of my chat with Jeremy Taggart, former drummer of Toronto, Ontario's Our Related Peace. Now, the clumsy is, is when things really started to go nuts for you guys. Um, so, can you talk about how quick, how quickly things changed for you guys from being like a club band? Or you know, thousand C, 1500 to arenas. Well, the, it was to the point where, on the end of towards the the like end of Navid when American radio kicked in and it was the end of of our run of the record in Canada. We were playing colleges and whatever rooms they had and the biggest rooms they had and they were full. And we did one quick couple week run when clumsy came out like the first week of clubs across the country just small shows Mm -hmm. and and i think the we had i'm I'm pretty sure that the tour was already on sale in arenas anyway as soon as we announced an arena tour they all sold out pretty pretty quickly like toronto sold out right away and the other ones were you know if not completely sold out close enough you know so it was pretty at that point it was at, at that level where he probably could have added three more shows in Toronto and they would have sold out too at Maple Leaf Gardens but we felt one one little rip across the country was good and we did maintain that we didn't want to play to play too much we would only play uh, Canadian cities once on a record so we did the small run and then one big run. And then uh, after that, I think because we couldn't do the same arena run of Clumsy, we did like a completely different thing of like an acoustic tour of, of the next record first. Something like that. It was like, uh, was that on uh, Spiritual Machines maybe? I think it was on Happiness. We did an unplugged kind of run hmm. instead of an arena run. Now, when you when a band sells out Maple Leaf Gardens, like a bunch of Toronto boys, I mean, do you feel the weight of that, the significance of it? Um, it was pretty special. I, I'd lived, I was living at Richmond and Sherburne in a loft at the time, and uh, it was like I walked home after the show, and huh. it was like that was nuts. <laughs> the walk home from Maple Leaf Gardens after huh. playing it was pretty pretty cool. Now, since you're the headliner, you know, in in a way that Page and Plant and Van Halen, you know, picked you to be their opening act in arenas, how much of a discussion and how important was it for you to now give that same opportunity to another a band? Well, I mean, we always had bands that either people would like to see or bands that we liked. I think we had uh, BTK hmm. on a bunch of shows because we thought they were a cool Canadian band at the time. And then... Uh, Everclear, they were on that, right? That too well. You know, you're selling on Maple Leaf Gardens. You have you know videos in high rotation on Much Music. You're on the cover of Chart Magazine, and 
are you feeling that sense of fame that you're a famous person now? I mean, are you having people stalking your hotel, your bus in the same way, you know, Beatles would have had back in the day? I mean, are you, are you feeling that? Well, I mean, for, for probably a micro second, like yeah. when we, there was about six months where we were selling the same amount of records as the Spice Girls every week. And wow. it was like one, one, two on the, on the charts for like six months. So <laughs> around that time, there was like times of us getting like you chased down alleys or hmm. chased running away from people like the stuff like that for like a microsecond. Interesting. But, yeah. uh, you know, that was it. Not, it wasn't like being in the Jonas brothers or anything, <laughs> but like it was pretty crazy. Um, when there was a lot of people around. Did the band have somebody kind of keeping you, uh, humble? keeping you realistic or were you guys going in like four different rock star directions? I think at that time we were expecting because the success of clumsy was so big. Um, we ex- kind of assumed that it would continue, which is what every band does. You know, they just think, well, we're going to, we sold, you know, we sold a million records in Canada. Like, <laughs> How ridiculous is that <laughs> to think that that's going to happen on the next one? And the, the next, like, Happiness ended up selling, like, 400,000 copies in Canada. And we thought that was, like, a failure, you know? Mm. So, that like, uh, th- there's an element of, like, what the fuck's going on? <laughs> like, well, what are you thinking? <laughs> you know, for, for to, to have still a triple platinum plus album and it's not happening. It's just uh, kind of infuriating looking back, but um, that was kind of it. Like it, um, and then I guess having the success of of Gravity after Spiritual Machines helped in in some regard. I think that's probably that record being successful gave the band kind of classic status, in my opinion, because that gives you an opportunity to play an hour and a half of songs that people know and are quite recognizable. So that will happen. You don't, you don't go away after that. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. If you can play a festival and have everybody sing along for 90 minutes, like that's just, those are the bands that live nation kind of like makes the world go around, you know? (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. So, so yeah, like, uh, at that time, though, there was probably a, a struggle of like not being as big as we were in 1998, in 2002 or three, you know. And uh, I, I don't know that that just was evident in a sense, you know, where you're kind of trying to continue pat the past success without, uh, you know, and that that's difficult. I don't like to do business that way myself. I, I'm more about maximizing your daily thing and whatever happens happens and you think about that only you don't kind of uh you don't try to to chase things and and again that's another reason why i I left was just that kind of i felt in a sense kind of where you see a direction and you don't agree with the direction and there's no point in being there if you if you're if you feel that way and that's definitely the case what was the uh, the difference of opinion and direction? I mean, what were you thinking the band should do, and what was you know somebody like Rain or Duncan thinking? Uh, it's it's definitely Rain only. It's not the other guys. 
always rain. <laughs> I felt it, it was it was kind of a, a thing that was continual that kind of would kind of come and go and and I just was like I'm just not doing this anymore. You know, it's kind of definitely was like common. It was common in a sense from almost like I had an initial uh, feeling of wanting to split in the, in like, I think like 1999. Oh, wow. So it wasn't, it wasn't like something that was just out of the blue. It was just the last like five, six years was getting to the point where it was more obvious, you know, it's like, okay, that's, that makes sense for me to, to, like, I need to make this change now. And that's that. So I, it wasn't like, uh, definitely wasn't, it was actually, um, I felt like relief the, the, the moment I did it and decided it was going to happen. So, um, and, and ever since has been the same, I've had no regrets of like, Oh, you know, like I miss playing live, but I miss playing live period. And, um, I, I, this pandemic hasn't been great for playing with people for sure. But in the last couple of years, I've, I've been kind of getting more into performing again. So um, that will happen again. I'll play with people and that's that's how it is. I love to play. So I certainly don't like miss playing and like, you know, being in Our Lady Peace. That's definitely, that. Don't, I don't miss it at all. Like I cherish my days there, but I don't want to do it anymore. That's for sure. You know, it's been about six or seven years now since since you left i mean do you guys have relationships still with rain and duncan and i don't talk to rain at all but i talk to i talk to duncan once in a while and i talk to steve i talk to those guys on the reg i guess that's nice for sure cool yeah you know you mentioned like that six month window of of things being really really nuts during the clumsy era and you're selling records on on uh, akin to the spice girls in canada so when you go down to America, you don't have that same level of craziness. Is it like a a discussion in the band of why this isn't happening down here as big as it is in our own country? Or is that just something you guys aren't even being aware of? Well, no, like, yeah, because, I mean, we were, like, we were doing well in America to the point where, you know, playing, like, 4,000 seaters in America. So we felt like we were close in America, just needed maybe one more song to kind of get over into the green dot, you know, get up to that level. Right. <laughs> Make it, you know, we felt like we just needed one more song to blast it out. And I think the fact that Naveed came out on relativity instead of uh, Columbia, that had a lot to do with the initial kind of, uh, it could have been, I think, a lot bigger if it was on Columbia. And Donnie Einer, the president of Columbia, was always kicking himself that he never had a chance to work Starseed. Hmm. So um, I think we were kind of feeling that this was our first record now for Columbia and Sony in America. So there was a lot of that where we felt um, th- they wanted us to be an arena band in America. You know, so we were we were we were trying to 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 uh, I guess get there, as, but you know, it's just we never had that success, and it had to do with more alternative radio never kind of came back after mm-hmm. Starseed. I don't know why. I don't know if it was the Van Halen tour or what. That uh, a year later, you know, K Rock wasn't playing Superman. 
9X did did uh, play it a bit, but it wasn't the same impact that alternative radio that leads to press and all the magazines and all that stuff. So right. um, they went with Bush, and you know what I mean, and those, right. like kind of that that route, and uh, that's it. Like it, it it's one of those things where we did it in Canada and it, and it connected a hundred percent, but in America it connected, but it didn't connect in the same way. So um, I think. It's also the label down there, right? Because they want you to to get to that next level. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, that's a couple records where it was. In, it's interesting because they. I, I don't think we knew what America, the label, were looking for in a sense. You know what I mean? When they mm. were literally having like thirty people flown in from all over the world to listen to your album, mm. um, the happiness record. And there's like they listen to everything, and then they all just kind of leave, and there's no, no, there's no like that's the single for sure, you know. Huh. That kind of that was kind of the vibe for the next couple records. There's no like, oh, that's that's a fucking single right there. Everybody can easily get behind. It was always kind of a little more vague, and uh, we were still doing really well live, and people were coming out, and uh, we did get radio and had good uh, like reasonable success but we always had good good relationships with with festivals and stations so we kind of always maintained some kind of a face you know but radio is a a a prickly beast in america man either you get it or you don't um you guys still did the you know late night talk show run on that record i mean i know you guys came back to conan um yeah was conan a fan of your guys's band or was that or something really yeah, he he was cool. I mean, we did it five times, I think. Wow. And, and uh, he was always uh, really, you know, super supportive. He didn't like like hang out, not like John Stewart, but you know, to have us on there all the time was great. I think. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but on that uh, first appearance on Conan that I referenced earlier, are you are you not rocking a glue leg T-shirt? I am. Yes. Respect, sir. For sure. Love Blue Leg, yeah, my boys. Nice. I still uh still talk to Christian Simpson on the reg. Nice. Yeah. And Bob Mackowitz, the original original trumpet player. So yeah, no, Blue Leg, man. They were awesome.
what other bands um, that came up in that era were you a fan of that you were like, shit, let's... Change of, change of, change of heart, for sure. You know, Ian Blurton. And you guys took them on that uh, clumsy tour as well. I mean, that little... Uh, I think so. Around the dates as well, for sure. Nice. There, I mean, there was a, that at that time, the whole East Coast scene was happening with, you know, Thrush Herman mm-hmm. and Sloan. And, I mean, there were so many great bands from the, from the East Coast as well that I kind of like missed out on in a sense because I was touring and interesting. Yeah. I feel like I could have been playing more with a lot of those bands, but we never, like we never really did. That was clumsy of, as that touring cycle kind of winds down and you now have all that success behind you. I mean, you've sold, like you said, sold 4 million records, what have you. Um, Is there now a bit bigger budget going in to the uh, third record with bigger expectations? Oh yeah. Yeah, for sure. Like it's like, and, and I think how that's how a seven album deal kind of that's how it works. Where the next record you get a bigger budget, and the record after that, like if you're still with us, then you must, you know, mean something, and you get that. So yeah, the but the budgets kind of grow, and uh, it just ended up turning into uh, like I remember a couple records after Gravity were ridiculous, just flying all over the place different huh. studios around the world like fucking crazy <laughs> spending four months at the village recorder in la going to maui for four months going to vancouver at the warehouse for three months just nuts new york just like all over the place i mean which uh method do you prefer like the, the early records when you're kind of at one spot for x amount of time or like you said flying to four different studios to, to complete one record yeah, well, I mean, the reason why the one was four different studios is because we kept go- starting and then like uh, not having the the uh, go ahead of feeling from the from the label with a song. So you, you keep writing and you keep writing and you keep writing, and then you you know you second guess yourself, so you rewrite everything you just recorded and do it again. And huh. It's just not a good process <laughs> when you're trying to like do something to get you know people down you know like you mentioned like 30 people coming in to to listen to the happiness sessions i mean is that while you're recording the record and then yeah that's crazy yeah and it's got to be intimidating to have a a bunch of suits in there just like eyeballing you as you listen to your (laughs) tunes man like well it's all the record heads from all the different regions around the world for sony and they're like if you don't have them on board then they're like i'm not putting this out huh it's interesting, like a band at, at, at you know OL, OLP's level would still have that kind of eyes on them. I well, guess. that's the thing. The, the higher level you get, the more that happens. Interesting. That's the thing. But we were actually on the highest level you can get to the point where they're flying executives to see and make sure to keep it so everybody's on board. The, the, the label is pulling all the stops across the board, so they want to have every country on board and ready to go so yeah i mean it's it's uh it's the case for any b- band that has uh, that kind of responsibility to the label i mean you you uh you have to have every country on the same level like i remember and we went and played a show in spain for like the world sony conference huh. and we we sucked we played really <laughs> badly kind of affected us i felt and then like around this world the whole world <laughs> so it's like it's just a weird feeling to be trying to do this for, for 
the the passion and yet you have this massive corporate kind of uh lug fest going on in the background all the time so it's, it can be difficult man in between clumsy and, and happiness you also met uh a fanny mina kim which you guys dedicated a song to on the record yeah well she came to the studio a few times and uh was just a, a really sweet girl and her family was really nice and uh that's it you know we just kind of tried to tried to make her world a little bit better you know to deal with the the horrifying situation she had to deal with and uh yeah it was heavy man and you uh you paid tribute to her i mean you guys with a great song and then at the end there it's like her maybe her father chantelle and yourself yeah yeah they're, they're uh singing yeah Sure. Yeah, it's, it was a it was a, a nice tribute, and uh, but all in all, just a very kind of eye opening situation, I guess. Rain wrote some beautiful lyrics to go along with that music as well. I think that really, uh, yeah, paid sure. paid nice tribute. Um, mm-hmm. The video must have been difficult to shoot. It was, yeah, the worst. We all got sick. I was also wondering like a, if. <laughs> Freezing cold water just ran, and I think it was probably from like uh, on the street. Like what the hell do they call them? The what dogs piss on? Fire hydrants. Yeah, fire hydrants. <laughs> it was literally from the fire hydrant no or something. Like just nasty cold water blasting from a tower onto our heads for like hours. <laughs> so yeah, by the end of the day, we were all all sick. It was the worst. I was wondering if you guys caught something from there because that's uh... yeah they caught the you know you kept, the misery that's happening in that video is true. <laughs> also, with happiness uh, beginning the era of the seven for yourself personally, yeah. Can you yeah. talk about uh, bringing that into your into your look? I guess I mean, that, yeah. I was like, well, I'm not wearing the if I'm not wearing the glasses, I'll wear the seven. <laughs> a transition just to keep something. <laughs> some kind of continuity and that's all that was just something to uh so so people might go what what the fuck is he wearing a seven again wasn't he wearing a seven month <laughs> you know that <laughs> that and you know it got to the point where in our uh Karen Kaplan was our American manager for a while in the beginning and she managed you too huh and then that, and then a couple of years later you saw a fucking Edge with the three shirts. Man. Where do you think he got that idea? <laughs> Jack and your shit. Remember he had the three going yes, every that's right. night? That's right, man. It's it's all coming together now, man. <laughs> Stealing from the best. Stealing from the best, man. Rivers first, Edge second. I set trends, yeah, motherfucker. Exactly. I do not I'm follow. Sure Rivers them. was going after Elvis Costello. They had no clue I was rocking those, but I'm just saying. <laughs> no, it was early. But yeah, Edge, Edge. Edge is cold stole. <laughs> <Cold laughs> well, here, here's my argument why Rivers might have uh, been aware of those glasses first, because I think rumor has it that, you know, that the uh, the sweater song by them, Undone, uh, was yeah. written after they heard Marion Cadell's The Sweater, who's a Canadian artist. No way. Yes. That's, Seriously? Uh, yeah, that's, so I read that. Well, they're from Boston, right? Right, so that is a Northern East, so, I mean, the connection is still... Much music in Boston. That's right, sir. 
I know you will understand this and feel the intrinsic incredible emotion. You have just pulled over your head the worn, warm sweater belonging to a boy. Now you haven't had a passionate kissing session or anything, but you got to go on a camping trip with him and eight other people from school. And you practically slept together, your sleeping bag right next to his. And you woke in the night to watch him as he slept, but you couldn't see anything because it was dark, so you just lay there and listened to his breathing and wondered if your heart might burst. The sweater has that slightly goat-like smell which all teenage boys possess, and that smell will lovingly transfer to all your other clothes. If you get to keep it for a few days, you can sleep with it, but don't let your mom see because she'll say, what is that filthy thing and who does it belong besides the trash man? So you have to keep it under the covers with you. You can kind of lie it beside you or wrap it around your waist or touch it on your legs or whatever, but that's your business. Now, if the sweater has, like, reindeer on it or is a funny color like yellow, I'm sorry, you can't get away with a sweater like that. Look for brown or gray or blue. Anything other than that, and you know you're dealing with someone who's different. And different is not what you're looking for. You're looking for those teenage, alpine, ski, chiseled features and that sort of blank look which passes for deep thought or at least the notion that someone's home. You're looking for the boy of your dreams who is the same boy in the dreams of all of your friends. Now the sweater isn't going to fit you, of course. You have to kind of roll up the sleeves in a jaunty way that says this is the sweater belonging to a boy and the boy is a genuine hunk, a hunk of burn in love and this is not just some hand-me-down from your brother or your father. Monday, wear the sweater to school. Be calm, look cute. Don't tell the dream you had about the place the two of you would share when you get older. Just be yourself. The best, cutest, quietest version of yourself. Definitely wear lip gloss. He looks at you, and he looks away, and then he walks away, and the smell of the sweater hits you again suddenly like ape-scent gloriola, and you get a note passed to you by a girl in history that says he needs his sweater back. He forgot that you put it on in the tent on Saturday, and he's been looking for it. And you don't have to die of humiliation, you know. You are a strong person, and this is a learning experience. You can still hold your head up high as you run from the classroom, tearing the stinking sweater from your body. You look at that sweater, carefully, and you realize that love made you temporarily blind. You got a secret now, honey, and though you would never sink as low as him, you could blab it all over the school if you wanted. The label in that sweater said 100% acrylic. Now, with Happiness, also, um, another video had Catherine Monig in it, which is like her first acting gig or something. According to, to Wikipedia, it was on Ray Donovan and The L Word. And That's right. Yeah, just another crazy cute. link between you yeah. guys and, and videos, man. And, and that was uh, Anybody Home, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which was a, probably one of my favorite videos. Oh, yeah. How was the live performance in that uh, filmed, like compared to Naveed, for example? What I loved, what I loved about that video was, I I wasn't there at all, except for like twenty, like whatever, an hour to do the live thing, which we went through the song like three times, and that was it. Like huh. the director was a master; he was an Italian guy that like had been doing crazy movies, and uh, he just crushed that video. Like huh. it was really. I was blown away when I saw that video. With happiness, also you touched on it earlier, but you were, you were allowed uh, the luxury of having a, uh, some guests on the record. Uh, Elvin Jones yeah. contributing yeah. to Stealing Babies. Uh, 
can you talk about your how your connection with Elvin develop and um well we had we had, I think it was because I'm not sure if it was weighted or stealing babies but we like we called like the song was called Elvin because it was playing hmm. an Elvin eel interesting I think it it weighted because initially we're like well let's have him play on weighted hmm. and stealing babies and we'll and kind of anyway uh i think he tried weighted and, and it wasn't working and then did stealing babies but anyway i was calling the song elvin and i'm like why don't we just get elvin to come and play on this how fucking cool would that be <laughs> you know crazy budget you know we're getting fucking catering every day a guy cooking no cooking way. up food oh yeah like <laughs> it was ridiculous so i i, I had met elvin once uh, a few months earlier with my friend Greg Keplinger is a, a, a drum maker in Seattle. And he uh, uh, introduced me to Alvin at the uh, the Jazz Alley in in Seattle. And uh, so that's when I first met Alvin. And uh, when I came up with the idea to have him play on the song, I just got back in touch with him and his wife Keiko who was his manager took care of everything for him even in tuned his drums huh. uh, to come up and play on the record and he did and he was uh, he spent like three days in Toronto and we got to hang out and, uh, it was just a, a, a blast man he's such a great musician but it, uh, such an intelligent uh, was such an intelligent person and very intel, so smart and funny, and uh, just uh, a huge loss to have, and and uh, probably one of the most influential, if not the most influential drummer ever. Elvin. Oh wow! And that's your current profile pic on Twitter, isn't it? You and Elvin? Yeah, yeah, for yeah, sure. From those sessions, I guess. Yeah. And what was it about stealing babies that you you thought that really might uh, be a fit for him? Well, he he dug the melody like he was listening to it. He was mm. like, "Man, I love the melody," to the point where he's like, "I'd like to play this song." I was like, "Wow, that would with the jazz machine, that would have been amazing." He didn't didn't do it, but uh, he it was nice enough for him to even think of doing that to arrange something with that head, that melody. But anyway, he uh, he, he he just rocked such a cool groove on that and I was just out with him in the studio kind of I was letting him know when parts were coming like the chorus and the pre or whatever mm. to just be out there watching him play and then to, to play drums right after on top of it you know uh, with him was incredible um, just to kind of to find his nuances and click in with his feel to play to lock in with him it was really difficult, like I said, to, 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 to locate the feel. But once I did, it was like, I opened my eyes so greatly, you know. Hmm. But she had some good conversations about uh, drumming and drummers with a guy like Elvin Jones, man. Yeah. We talked mostly about everything else. Like, no, no way. Yeah, from science fiction novels that he likes to com comedians. We talked about, like, he loved talking about, like, Red Box. And <laughs> nice the road and you know being on the road and history and yeah he, he he didn't really like to talk about drums and he'd like to talk about just life
Y'all leaving pieces of family How you gonna help them understand? Well, I'm screaming, I'm stealing babies Why you wanna knock us down again? Why? I should say, I'm so sorry I should we pray? Safely to her dream Yeah. 
Now, before Happiness even comes out, um, you guys play one of your biggest gigs ever, and that's Woodstock 99. Um, do you guys remember getting the call to do that festival? Um, any extra kind of pressure, you know, coming up with a set list for it and things of that nature? Our egos were on 11. <laughs> so we had the fucking audacity, the audacity to play a bunch of songs from fucking Happiness. <laughs> no like probably we played 60 minutes and probably only played like like Starseed in the beat or something like that like honestly we didn't really play much that anybody knew and we played a bunch of new songs and nobody knew like I was like what, looking back I'm like what the fuck were we thinking <laughs> like we played really well I like it's a good it's a good performance but and it's fine if you know those songs now but to think like nobody knew those songs and what were we thinking that if you play 30 minutes of music that no one's heard and how's that going to help us to freaking half a million? It's just bizarre. You're so excited about playing new music that you fucking think everybody's going to love it and they don't. What do you remember about uh, being backstage on that kind of environment, like with all those acts running around? I mean, is it, do you see everybody's everybody in and out for their one thing or is there like a sense yeah. of community or? It's pretty surreal. Like I watched Rage and Limp Biscuit, I think, from the side stage. Like, up, so that was a, it was cool to see that. Uh, Metallica, I went out front, and that was insane. I couldn't believe. It. I was like, I'm, I spent maybe four minutes out in the crowd, and then I started backstage again. <laughs> Sit around, and yeah, like everyone was there, but like every, it's just such an odd thing. Everyone was just kind of hanging out backstage and just chilling. Now, while we're on the topic of like festivals, Somersaults, you guys also started your own in 98. How much of a a burden financially was it to, you know, you guys split it four ways? I mean, I mean, you know, to get acts like Foo Fighters and Smashing Pumpkins and, you know, Perfect Circle. I mean, how does uh, the logistics of something, putting, putting something like that together work? Yeah, well, I mean, you have, you have, uh, it's not our money, but you have this big chunk of Live Nation money that, you you know, so you go, you got to pay these bands a lot to get them to do these festivals. So, yeah, we probably ate a bit, ate it a bit to to make it happen for sure to have all those bands, but it was way, it was the best idea to do it for sure. It was great. And did you guys each, uh, like, say, I want this band, that band? Did you guys each, like, did you guys have to agree on everyone together or? Honestly, the, that kind of lineup, we were just kind of, I just remember call, making phone calls and seeing if you're interested. And um, I, honestly, I was selfishly just trying to find the best drummers I could. <laughs> <laughs> I was just lucky enough that we had, uh, you know, by having Perfect Circle, we had Josh Freeze and um, the Pumpkins, Jimmy Chamberlain and, obviously with the Foo Fighters and uh, Deftones and just like really wicked drummers everywhere. So it was, it was pretty fun for me. I mean, do you have a, you know, do you have a conversation with a guy like Dave Grohl about music sure. or? Yeah, no, we, we became pretty close actually. I, I, uh, I became close with Taylor when he was playing with Alanis. Right. Right. And I, it's so funny enough, me and my friend Stacy Jones from American Hi-Fi and Letters to Cleo, 
Mm-hmm. We were in all of the same room. I think I think uh, Stacy was playing with Rook Assault at the time, huh. and they SNL or something. Anyway, we're all three of us were in the same area where Kaler, me, and 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 Stacy were in their hotel room and like slept in, on the floor or something like that. But literally within like that. 24 hours taylor got the gig for foo fighters which kind of changed his whole life oh wow um i think he was getting tired probably playing with atlantis and looking for something else but that's obviously a pretty good step spiritual machines was your uh quickest follow-up to a record usually it took two or three years i'm wondering why the quick turnaround with spiritual machines well i think probably the lack of touring mm-hmm. is my guess Kind of went into the studio again. We didn't really tour much, so that's it. Was it not touring much because of you know you guys deeming it you know failure, even selling four hundred thousand records? I mean, was it was that the reason you guys didn't work it as long as? I don't know. Maybe like maybe it was like you know we have to get back out there so we can play arenas again. So let's hurry up and go back into the studio and come up with a hit record, mm-hmm. which was actually a similar repeat of of happiness in a sense, if not a little less, you know? Hmm. So that's when I guess things started to turn more where it's like, well, what the fuck are we going to do to get back there? And I'm, I'm not, you know, at that point it was more about maintaining. So again, the, the, the easiest way to have success is with radio. So um, that was what brought on the change to uh, work with Bob. Before we get into gravity, though, I mean, there's another fun fact regarding the uh, the people might not know about OLP and yourself is that uh, there was an incident that you couldn't con- complete the record and you had Pearl Jam's drummer, Matt Cameron, step in. Yeah. What was the incident that led to him stepping in and how did you uh, know him and how did that actually, did you just make a call and say, hey, but buddy Matt, like, talk us through that. Yeah, well- I was I was kind of like in the ridiculous way uh, mugged by a like a dirt ball, <laughs> and in that mugging I was, took a knock to my knee or my my tibia actually and chipped it. Oh wow! So it was like really difficult to walk, and uh, literally Pearl Jam had like a day off, and I was like going to see them anyway. And uh, I said, hey, man, I can't play right now. Can you, we have two songs to finish on this record. Can you come and do it? And he's like, sure. And he banged it out in like huh. two hours. Like, wow. And I thought he played great. Like he did awesome, an awesome job and helped, you know, those songs for sure. You haven't seen the world inside the days you sleep, you hope, you wait Imagination disappears and all the dreams you have, you say Confrontation like a minute try to take your mind Do. No matter what, I'm always right there behind you 
develop with Matt? How did you guys get to know each other where you could feel comfortable enough to ask him to do that? Through Greg Kaplinger. Hmm. Greg Kaplinger, like he was Matt's tech on, I think, bad not bad Motorfinger, but Super Unknown. Hmm. And like he used Greg's snare drums on Super Unknown. And uh, I loved Super Unknown as a record. And through a mutual friend, got to meet Greg and I bought a couple snare drums from him. And that's kind of how, uh, through meeting Greg, I met Matt at a drum, I think at a drum festival in Vancouver huh. or no, I think I met Matt at Lollapalooza backstage when they were playing with, uh, yeah, he just joined Pearl Jam. So I met him when Pearl Jam was playing Lollapalooza. And then, uh, that's how we maintained it. From there, I saw I saw them. I saw Soundgarden play at Varsity Arena in Toronto, but I, I, I I'm not sure if I met him there or not. So when when you meet somebody like like a Matt Cameron, for example, I mean, are they? I mean, how aware are they of what's going on in Canada music wise? I mean, are they fan? Were they a fan of your band? Were they a fan of the Hip, for example? Of um, yeah, they knew because I guess Seattle just from radio probably, but mm-hmm. they. Most big bands in Canada, they would know who they were. I'm not sure if they were like big fans or not, but they mm-hmm. were aware of aware of everybody for sure, definitely. Have you ever been surprised of somebody was like a celebrity of some renown being a fan of your band? Like you mentioned, John Stewart earlier, and have you ever uh, run into that again? Where you're like, oh shit, man, that's pretty cool. For me, it's drummers, definitely. Yeah. Like. Uh, I remember we were playing in Paris once and I, and Manu Cache came and watched and that like he was one of my favorite drummers growing up. So to, to have him hang out and then get to talk to him afterwards, that was pretty awesome. Other than that, I mean, sure, you see celebrities and they come and they say hi and stuff. But like for me, it was always cool to see drummers that I really dug. Hmm. Like Mike Bolton from Faith No More. Oh, yeah. You know, he was always really nice. Even like, uh, you know, seeing like sound checking at Page and Plant and I look and there's Jimmy Page dancing <laughs> when I'm playing. That, that kind of shit. You know, I love Amazing. that stuff. Yeah, that's some <laughs> shit you do not forget, man. That's, that's special, man. Um, yeah. Now with, you know, Happiness being the last record that uh, Saul was featured on in the artwork and, and Spiritual Machines ends up being the last record that Mike appears on. So those two things kind of uh, signal 
an end of an era for a lot of people. I was wondering if you could take us through Mike's departure from the band. I would say the, the vibe in the, in the band at that time was kind of toxic, you know, the feeling. Like just personalities clashing or like people getting on each other's nerves or? Think, you know, things just were kind of all over the place. Like mm. there was just, didn't know which way was up, who was thinking what, you know, hidden agendas all over the place. Mm. You know, everybody's looking, looking out for something else. So it was that kind of feeling, you know. So um, I, I think uh, it, it was just probably a you know really painful time you know for 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 Mike the most and uh, I've, I've actually talked about that with him and I feel bad for him about um, just kind of how hard it kind of was because it, 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 he kind of laid the brunt of all the stress hmm. you know and and he, to, to be honest like. Um, we were kind of asking him to do the impossible a lot of the time in the studio and uh, cool to, to, to kind of try and make somebody play something that they can't or a style that, that just doesn't feel comfortable. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And then, so there, there was that and, and just the element of, I think uh, as a band, it just things weren't, weren't uh, firing properly to, to continue what, at where we were at, you know? So I change was necessary for us to kind of move on. And, uh, it was definitely a, a change. And, uh, I think, uh, yeah, it was definitely a different feeling and different era by having Mike on and Steve there. And, uh, obviously having Jamie Edwards kind of along for the ride, with Mike and then after Mike a little bit kind of I guess made the transition I guess understandable in a sense you know like at least we could maintain creativity through all that shit mm -hmm. by having Jamie there because um, you can't just throw all that on top of Steve you know mm -hmm. so it's just uh, it's always I think no matter what in 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 Our Lady Peaceville, like it, it, it the, the being the guitar player will always be a difficult thing because it's kind of uh, the where the hooks and the uh, the, the vibe and the, the idea of what the song is 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 trying to to intend. He always kind of hangs on the guitar's shoulders because the drums are doing one thing and the bass is doing something else, and there's the big opportunity for melody outside of the vocal is the guitar. So there's always a lot of pressure. I've never been in a band, but I've got to imagine there's a certain amount of brotherhood uh, you develop after spending so much time together. So when somebody like Chris or Mike um, leaves the band, is that something that one person takes the responsibility to deliver the news, or is that something you guys all do as a unit? No, we always did it together, yeah. face to face. I, I, I'm not like Chris happened really quickly, and you no know, rain and Chris talked, but like, you know that that was with Mike. It was a long conversation that we had with Mike. Yeah, mm. uh, yeah, a painful one. You yeah, know? I could, and, I could uh, imagine. Yep. And I, at that time, I, I 
admit that I was being an asshole too, you know, so it wasn't, I wasn't, I definitely wasn't helping the situation, you know? Mm. So looking back, I feel there's probably more brotherhood now mm. than there ever was. Everybody, uh, aside from rain involved with OLP, including Robin Hatch. So how was it writing with Steve? Like you said, the guitar is such an important part of our, our lady piece. Yeah. It changed. Totally changed. It was more it's not like to, you know, it became, I think, also because Rain and Steve living in L.A. and Duncan and I living in Toronto, mm-hmm. there was more just a satellite creation of music. And it, um, Steve is in his studio and does a lot of writing. And that, that kind of became a, a different way of writing. Instead of us all getting together and coming up with ideas, it was more just like someone has an idea that they sent back and forth and vice versa. And then you get to L.A. and you do it for three days in a room together, you know, and that's that, that becomes the song. So that's, that was the difference of, of recording compared to the other days, the older days where um, you kind of sit in a room for a month and, and then come up with songs in that month and that becomes the record the, or the bulk of it. So do you, you think if like Rain and Steve would have been like, in Toronto or you guys in LA, like things would have been like the old days. Would you guys have still, I think it's more to do with how rain is like writes and records now himself. It's mm-hmm. like kind of quick and there's no like production, pre-production vibes with LP, you know, that's the difference. So, and you know what, it's a, the, the, the landscape completely has changed. Like I don't even see the point like if I was still in the band, I'd be like, why even make an album when people don't listen to albums anymore, really? You know, like they don't put it on from beginning to end that are fans of OLP. They might do that with some other band, a new band, but they're not doing it with, with OLP now. So why expect that to even be a thing? I, I would I would recommend just, you know, either if you can get uh, one song or some song that's tied in with something that can be promoted in a way and then go and tour and play the fucking hits. <laughs> you know, that... Was it important to, um, you know, towards like, the end of your tenure with Our Lady Peace to have a varied set list? Like, you, you know, or, or were you like just all about give the people what they want or was it like dusting off Neon Crossing or off the first record or Car Crash or, you know, Potato Girl or something? Yeah, well, you you know, we'd have a, a like a, a, a skeleton set of songs that were kind of going to be that set for the next tour. And then we would add like bass for, you know, three or four songs to come in and out every night to mix it up, whether that be an old, haven't played in a while or a cover or whatever. With uh, Gravity, uh, you touched on it earlier, but bringing in Bob Rock versus um, Arnold Lanny, who did your first four records, was that a difficult decision to um, to part ways with Arnold and bring in something that was completely different? No, it was time for a change. I think it was like if the band probably wouldn't have continued if we kept doing that. You know, that's why we went to Bob. It was kind of like we need a breath of something or we're going to be done. So I think that Bob was a, a huge part in kind of giving us a understanding of, a, you know, a different perspective 
and uh, definitely helped for sure. Was there a, a different perspective you had in mind um, changing the style of music? Because it's, you know, Gravity's a really heavy record, and there's very little falsetto from Rain, very little of his little vocal creativity, little splashes that he did on, you know, the previous four records. Was that all conscious going into it? No, yeah, it was basically kind of simplified. Everything was very simplified with Bob. And I think we had to kind of do that to almost like clean the palette in a way, mm-hmm. just so you can start fresh as opposed to trying to implement all that other stuff would have felt forced, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Instead of just to do something uh, for sure simpler, but um, find find a new role in that. And I think that's what we kind of did and instead of the the amount of sonic stuff that was normally happening kind of was trimmed for sure. Uh, I'm curious. I'm going to ask you uh, in just a, a few minutes to pick a few songs for, from the nineties for the playlist, but um, was there two or three songs from the 2000 and on era of our, of our lady piece that uh, you really dig like, that you really, uh, you really proud of? I think uh, angels losing sleep is a great song. I agreed. Yeah. I mean, like from Gravity on. Yeah, from Gravity on, like post uh, post spiritual, I guess. Will the future blame us? I like rabbits. I like off of curve. You left OLP in 2014, and since then you've uh, got together with Jonathan Torrens and created quite uh, quite the little podcast empire. I would have to say. I mean, you got books out, you got records out. How's the uh, the ride been? And uh, I know you guys do do live shows, but it's got to be a little bit different than doing. Uh, a concert with a full band, so I'm just wondering if you uh, if you miss it. It's a whole different thing, but it's uh, it's really great because uh, it's kind of like being in a band, even though you're doing a podcast. Because you know, I'm playing drums. You know, Jonathan's playing guitar, and and uh, we we have music and we play songs. So it's there's a little bit of that feeling that I, you know, of the, and the band and the loading in and the, it's just great. Like it really is fun. He's a great guy and he's fun to, to, to work with and uh, he's very positive and makes, makes it easier. So I think uh, both of us, Jonathan and I came to this point in our lives where we've been working with all kinds of different people. And we're like, you know what, let's just do something uh, together that, you know, cause we know we, we enjoy each other's company and, you know, it's definitely more a hobby than a jobby, but like <laughs> we've got a lot of fans and we have over, you know, 35,000 downloads a month. And so there's a lot of people that, that, uh, that listen to us every week. So we, you know, um, we look forward to doing more live shows and getting back out there. But, uh, even though it's smaller, it still feels really fulfilling because it's, uh, there, there. I can feel the foundation of all the all the bods, you know, all the people that listen to the podcast. So it's been really awesome to to have that transition, but also maintain kind of like I'm doing something and I'm still kind of creating something, and I I'm, I have control of my life and I can do uh, my own scheduling. I don't have to worry about like putting something on the calendar in three months and all of a sudden I can't do it. You know, like mm-hmm. being in a box because you, 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 you'll say, I want to do something in the summer and everything changes in three months, you know, like you don't have, uh, 
calendar or a schedule that you can control. And that, that kind of was probably the sneakiest, most grind, the grindiest thing was just not having uh, enough control of what I want to do. And with this podcast, you guys have also brought uh, some terms into the lexicon. Bods, Bodism, Canadianity. Um, yeah. Genius. Uh, for the people who might not fami- be familiar with what those terms mean, can you maybe uh, break them down for us in the podcast? Yeah, well, Bods is just like Bud, but better than a Bud. You know? <laughs> it's actually, hey, Bud, how's it going, Bud? It's, it's just something, there's a love that's with it. Um, Canadianity is a word that we trademarked. <laughs> which is just uh, the uh, the being of you know whether it's like uh, paying for the guy behind you at Tim Hortons is Canadianity, but also like getting to the to the rink with one shoe on and a skate with the other sh- you know the other foot. <laughs> that's, that's heavy Canadianity too. <laughs> so it's like being, but also just doing something that's full on like classic Canadianity. So. Uh, yeah, we 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 have a lot of little words and 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 sayings that kind of uh, go on and, and people kind of throw into their repertoire. <laughs> <laughs> there's a there's something else that I'm going to be throwing in my repertoire, and that's something you said in another podcast where you uh, you were describing your book as a two shits read because it's very small. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, fuck, dude, I cracked up when I heard you call it a two shits read, man. <laughs> that's good i don't saying that yeah that's funny um actually before we move off of our lady peace and just uh, a little bit more of the comedy because we're on that topic but when we really uh connected on twitter a while back ago because uh you were breaking down the different nicknames you had for rain because you know as michael yeah. anthony media uh, you, you had tony which i thought was genius it, it, what were the yeah. other ones where you guys uh you guys messed with them with about well, I mean, we had a, a, a bus driver named Jim Boatman from Nashville. He was in the fifth. He was in a a doo-wop group, like he was a tenor singer, and he had driving Willie Nelson and all these super legends in the seventies. And anyway, when he was driving us, he was like, "You guys don't even know you're at the pinnacle of your career. You have no life." <laughs> And he would call Rain, call them Rainburger. <laughs> and and uh, it was great because, like, it was loving enough, but also taking him down a peg enough <laughs> that it was like, like, set Rain. Because he knew Rain right away, what kind of guy he was. And he hit him with Rainburger, and Rainburger <laughs> accepted it and allowed it. You know what I mean? Because the way that he said it, and he was a lifer, just a classic guy. Yeah. But yeah, Rain really stuck with me <laughs> i even still have a bag full of picks that have rain burger on them with a burger amazing <laughs> now you guys have uh released an album under tagging and torrents in which uh jonathan handles a lot of the lead vocal duties so i'm curious if you can compare and contrast working with uh rain made as a vocalist versus working with jonathan torrents as a vocalist <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's just I'm laughing the whole time. So. No, there is no work, you know. It really is. It's it's more because uh, Jonathan's you know happy to just be there doing anything in the studio musically. He just got his eyes wide open and 
and, and uh, but he's he's a talented guy, you know. So mm-hmm. you can throw stuff at him, and he just he gets it. So um, we had a lot of fun writing lyrics and uh, concepts, and uh, going to you know, Dine Alone were awesome enough to have do do the record with us, and um, we ha- we have like country songs and hip hop songs, and you know. Uh, EDM jams and just all kinds of different styles. So it was really fun to make for sure. Is there a track that's uh, I could play now on the podcast, like a lead single or something that you think is uh, really reflective of? Uh... Sure. Yeah, you could, uh, you could rock the score. Nice. That's the uh, Gordon Lightfoot. <laughs> uh, it starts out like old school Lightfoot, but then it gets down and it's it's a full on hip hop jam. Yes. That's he, it's a diss track against Bruce Colburn. <laughs> how, how did the beef with Bruce start? Well, because well, it's because uh, they're Bernie Bernie Finkelstein. Yeah, there's Bernie Fiedler and Bernie Finkelstein. We met like melded them both, so they <laughs> just are. So the whole thing on the podcast is Bernie manages. Gord and Bruce, and Gord always is pissed off that he's doing stuff for Bruce. <laughs> There's no reason at all. It's just funny. It's make it's make believe kind of a make believe beef because Gordon Lightfoot Gordon Lightfoot lives across the street from Drake on the bridal path. He sees. That's why. Yeah. So that's why the song is over to Drake's. And have you heard any feedback from Gordon or Bruce? Or no, no, or no. <laughs> Oh, no, actually, Bernie. Bernie likes it. Bernie, we've heard about Bernie. He's heard it, and nice. he thinks it's funny. At sundown, I feel you lurking in the shadows. In the early morning rain, you're creeping round my door. On the carefree highway, I see you in the rear view. If you could read my mind, then you'd know the score. Yeah. 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 It's the OGGL, straight out of a really L. Bridal path now, cause my album sold really well. Records on the wall, gold chain around my neck. 10,000 square feet with a three level deck. Crowds on their feet, wondering where I got this sick beat. Drizzy is my neighbor, he lives just across the street. He invites me over, borrows my lawnmower. We head to the club in our twin Range Rovers. Portside at the Raptors, packed to the rafters. Messiah and Larry Obi at the private party after. Rainy day, people think they got me on the run, but the haters going down. Like the wreck of the Edmund Rolling on 23's Weekends at Bernie's Cribbing Georgian days Sell my schooner on the high seas Spitting railway trilogies Dylan wants to be me Elvis jacked my song So did Peter, Paul, and Mary Cause I'm the folk music Gretzky B Yeah And that's the score That's the score huh? What? And that's the score Huh? Hey, what up? Undefeated And that's the score Huh? Others tend to envy my rocket-like trajectory Buy a rocket launcher, I could buy the whole factory Hey, statue in Aurelia Pardon? You're the Bruce Peninsula You were wondering where the lions are Yeah? This the king of the jungle, bruh What? Coldest night of the year? 
This the Mara Mara pose it right here. Zero zero, you want more? And, and that's the score. That's the score. Uh. That's the score. And that's the score. Woo! That's the score. That's the score. Huh? Yeah. That's the score. And that's the score. Woo! Ask my boy Drizzy right quick. That's it, cause that's the score. Huh? Uh. Hey. Uh. And that's the score. take it easy on those pills, would ya? Now, I have a playlist on Apple and Spotify of all 90s can rock, and I'm asking all the guests to contribute two singles and one deep cut to the playlist. So how would you like Our Lady Peace's 90s material to uh, be represented on my playlist? 90s material, okay. Uh, well, I'd have to go in the V just because of the, you know, the history. Mm-hmm. Um, and Starseed, too, just because it's, you know, it kind of it will always be the best rock song we ever wrote, you know, and ever. It's just, uh, it's a classic modern rock song, I think. Mm-hmm. And I have to go babies next. Nice. Elvis. Yeah. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, chat with me today, man. It's been, uh, been fantastic. My pleasure, man. I'm glad finally I could do it for you. Thank you so much for joining us today on Raven Drool. If you're interested in supporting the podcast, you can do so in a variety of ways. First, you can go to patreon.com slash ravedrool, become a patron, get access to deleted audio, get advanced notice of the guests, and get a chance to submit questions to those guests for an exclusive Patreon Q&A. Visit redbubble.com, search Rave Drool, and you can buy various goods with the Raven Drool podcast logo on it. Follow or subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to this. And if you listen to this on Apple Podcasts, please give us a five-star rating and review. If you're looking for more Naughty's Can Rock content, please find us on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram. And lastly, if you're looking for music, we have an official playlist on Apple and Spotify. Currently, it's curated by myself with tracks that I've selected, but as you heard during today's episode, eventually, it'll be curated by the guests themselves. Until next time, friends, take care. Yeah.